Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to the latest edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney, and we have a packed show for you guys today. Uh, coming up, we'll be looking back at the weekend's in-ring action, including Friday's Showbox card from the almost perfectly named town of Mulvane, Kansas. <laughs> so close. Uh, Come on, Kansas, be better. There were, there were a couple of times where Barry would start saying something like, well, I'm coming up here in Mulvane. And I'm like, coming up? Wait, what am I supposed to be doing? <laughs> um, so it did show me off a little bit. But anyway, I digress. We will also be rounding up some of the news in the boxing world at large, uh, looking ahead to some upcoming bouts. And we will also be joined by super middleweight contender Caleb Truax. He will help us preview and handicap this Saturday's Showtime Championship Boxing card live from the O2 Arena in London, England, starting at 3.45 p.m. Eastern. Make a note of that time. Uh, We mentioned this card in passing last week, but by way of a refresher, it's a doubleheader and an intriguing one at that. Uh, In the opener, young British heavyweight, actually not so young British heavyweight, (laughs) Joe Joyce, takes on battle-tested veteran Berman Stavern, and in the main event, it's a clash of super middleweights as James DeGale seeks to secure British bragging rights against Chris Eubank Jr. Yep, you mentioned British bragging rights. Uh, and for Eubank, there's a lot at stake in this regard, uh, as he has had two notable step-ups against top-level fellow countrymen, and both times he fell short. Those are the two losses on his 27-2 and record. In 2014, he lost by what was, in hindsight, a creditable split decision against Billy Joe Saunders. And then last year, he was outboxed by George Groves in what would turn out to be Groves' final win, if indeed he is retired, as he says he is. Eubank also has some good wins uh, against the likes of Spike O'Sullivan and Arthur Abraham, but against world-class fellow Englishmen, he's 0-2. DeGale is a world-class fellow Englishman, (laughs) and he has basically called this a loser-leaves-town clash. Uh, In America, we'd say three strikes and you're out. I don't know what the appropriate sports cliche in Britain would be, um, but... Realistically, if Eubank does lose this, does it relegate him to being remembered as just the moderately successful son of a more successful father? First of all, I realize I could just make up a term that would be the appropriate. I could say, the, oh, the equivalent of three strikes in your out is, oh, he bowled a googly jubbly. <laughs> and you'd go, really? I didn't know that. You have no idea. I think I might have caught on if that was what you went with. <laughs> if you did like sort of a three corner kicks and 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 you get a yellow card or something, right. you, you could have soccerized it and I might uh, ha- have believed you. But the googly mooglies or whatever you just threw it out there, I, I don't think I would have bought that. Googly is actually a term in cricket, which is a city sport, by the way, uh, that I don't really like very much. But now, anyway. And I have no idea whether to believe you on whether googly is a term in, uh, in cricket. <laughs> oh, should we get back to the subject? We I suppose, appreciate. yeah. So to answer your question, eventually, if he does lose this, Eubank, is he more likely to be recalled as you know, his father's son? Uh, yeah, in a word, I think he does. Um, like you said, he does have some good wins in there. Uh, in in that career, you know, Chudinov, the uh, Yildrim, and, and Arthur Abraham. But yeah, this would, as you point out, it would be the third time, not only that he's fallen short if he loses against, you know, fairly top-level opposition, um, but the third time he will have fallen short against top-level British opposition, which certainly won't help. Uh, that doesn't have to be disqualifying. Um, his father, of course, was part of a great era of British 
middleweights and super middleweights, uh, primarily uh, with Nigel Benn. Benn actually lost most of his domestic clashes in that era. He went uh, 0-1-1 and with senior Eubank, 0-2 against Steve Collins, mm-hmm. lost to Michael Watson. But he was still really popular uh, in the UK because of his achievements on the world stage. But Eubank Jr. doesn't have those to fall back on. Um, he doesn't have that fierce firefight with Gerald McClellan or a first-round stoppage of Iron Barkley. Um, and add to that the unique circumstance here of Junior, to my mind, is that the shadow of his father is a particularly tall, broad, and eccentric one. And, and it hasn't helped him, I think, that one gets the impression that his dad has been quite keen at times to cast that shadow. There have been times where he sort of posed theatrically in the corner in between rounds as if he wanted the attention to be him while others have gone about the business of actually giving Junior real instructions. So all of that, um, I think, definitely would, would sort of add up against him in, in the final reckoning, were he to lose. But, but talking about Senior posing in the ring, in, in the corner, in between rounds, while others are trying to give him advice, uh, this actually leads to one of the things that has blown me away. I didn't know about this. But in the build-up to the fight, this completely stuns me. Apparently, for this fight, it's the first time that Eubank has hired a full-time boxing trainer. Um, He's imported Nate Vasquez from the Mayweather Boxing Club. um, And he said, I haven't really had an official trainer. Uh, Ronnie Davis has been with me by my side um, my entire career, but he hasn't trained me. He's more of a, quote, overseer. I've just kind of done my thing. I've trained myself pretty much. But this fight, that will be different. And the other day, I saw some quotes from him saying, this time we've worked on footwork. I've never done that before. <laughs> I don't really know what to say about this, Eric, except that I can't quite wrap my head around a guy being 29 and 0 and 29 years old or, or, or having had 29 fights, excuse me, being 29 years old and never actually having had a full-time boxing trainer before. Can you? No, me neither. It's uh, it's it's unheard of as far as I know to get this deep into your career training yourself. Now, there are veteran fighters who were good enough to basically train themselves after a certain point. You mentioned the Mayweather Boxing Club. Well, let's be honest, Floyd Mayweather didn't really have much use for a trainer at a certain point. He was just employing his Uncle Roger to be nice. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, Bernard Hopkins is another one who really didn't need a trainer as he got toward the end of his career. But, yeah, this is a bizarre case with Eubank, and I wonder if you can switch from being your own boss for so long to suddenly, at age 29, asking someone else to be the boss. There could be some challenges baked in there. Uh, but, you know, nothing about Eubank's entry into boxing is normal. Uh, you know, he, he grew up in a mansion and on reality TV. Uh, he played badminton. Everything about his story is unconventional for a world-ranked professional boxer. Yeah. Okay, let's look at DeGale, uh, who followed a different sort of groundbreaking path uh, when he became the first British fighter ever to win Olympic gold and a professional world title. He's had a fine pro career for the past 10 years, but he's now saying that he might retire, even if he wins on Saturday. Uh, And there is a case to be made that he's on the downslope of his career. He's a mediocre 2-1-1 in his last four fights. Although he's 2-0 in his last two, his most recent win was a stay-busy outing against an opponent with 18 losses. The win right before that was a razor-thin decision against a man who handed him that one recent loss, our upcoming guest, Caleb Truax. Uh, And DeGale was arguably fortunate to escape with a draw against Badu Jack in the fight immediately preceding the Truax fights. I don't think anyone would throw around the W word. You know, he's not washed, but he looks to be slowing down a little. 
He's coming off some tough fights. He's 33. Could this be the perfect time for Eubank to be facing him when he may have half a foot already out the door? Yeah, I I don't think you ever want to hear a boxer talking about retiring possibly after a bout when he's going into that bout, do you? I mean, all too often it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Um, Yep. Um, we've seen what happened recently when future Hall of Famers like Bernard Hopkins and Miguel Cotto gave themselves what were on paper highly winnable farewell fights. Right. Um, you know, and, and Eubank, you know, he can indeed. He can certainly look at the fact it's been relatively tough going for De Gale lately. And there's also been for a while a question of the extent of De Gale's commitment to the training regimen that's required of top boxers, the degree of his dedication to his craft. So all of that, might give Eubank reason for encouragement. Um, conversely, however, uh, DeGale does have some real motivation here, um, as this does appear to have a genuine case of, this time it's personal about it. <laughs> um, you know, boxers can talk themselves into disliking other boxes over seemingly small slights. Um, last year, you put together the classic example of that, uh, an oral history podcast about the Fernando Vargas-Oscar de la Hoya rivalry. And for years, we wondered what horrible thing had happened between de la Hoya and Vargas to engender such hatred. And we were so disappointed when it turned out that Fernando fell in the snow and Oscar laughed. Um <laughs> So, but there's some history here too, although it feels as if this at least has a bit more meat to it. Um, right. So, a number of years ago, uh, De Gale, then 12 and 1 in the European champion, sparred with a then 5 and 0 Eubank. Um, the sparring session was scheduled for eight rounds, supposedly. De Gale's side claimed that Eubank's team quit the ring after six of those rounds. Uh, Eubank's side say the De Gale team was upset with the fact that Eubank vaulted over the ropes that enter the ring. And the DeGale team was certainly very upset with a tweet Eubank posted uh, afterward that said, Today I schooled European champ James DeGale. It was the first time I've seen a fighter trash talk while getting hit in the face. (laughs) (laughs) So, plenty of long simmering beef there. And they've continued to go back and forth at each other during the build-up to that. So, however ridiculous the start of it all was, the Vargas de la Hoya feud culminated in a pretty damn good fight. Uh... So, crystal ball time, do you think there's a chance that this one will get anywhere close to that in terms of quality or excitement? It absolutely could. Uh, You have Brit against Brit in front of a fired up, uh, read drunk, crowd at the (laughs) O2. Uh, And you have an aggressive, hungry fighter in Eubank and a guy in DeGale who hits and gets hit more than he used to. Uh, Mm. I should say also that there's a chance for an awkward clash of styles because Eubank has his technical flaws and DeGale's fights with Truax were certainly rough and tumble and maybe Eubank will try to replicate some of that. Uh, But more likely, if I had to guess, yeah, I think we'll see some quality brawling. Uh, These guys aren't on the De La Hoya Vargas level in terms sure. of skill and talent. Um, but just in terms of the potential for drama and, and some personal beef, uh, sure. Uh, a really thrilling, bloody scrap here should surprise no one if, if that's how it turns out. Yep. Uh, now, here's something that, that might surprise people. James DeGale has not won a fight in the UK in nearly four and a half years. Uh, That's partly because his last fight in Britain was his December 2017 loss to Truax, uh, but also because since late 2014, he's been something of a road warrior fighting in Boston, Quebec City, Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, Las Vegas, and Ontario. 
Kieran, you've been ringside for a couple of big fight nights in the UK. What kind of atmosphere can DeGale expect for his return to a British ring? Well, I mean, you've already sort of hinted at this and touched on this. It's going to be a cracking atmosphere. I mean, it always is for big to biggish UK fights. Uh, British fight fans are incredible. And, and the sport, as you and I have talked about before, uh, continues to be in the ascendant over there. Uh, the O2 is a great venue, a really fantastic venue. It seats 20,000 people. It's the second highest capacity indoor arena in the country, and it'll be full, I'm sure. Uh, I covered Gennady Glovkin's win over Kel Brook there. Um, and, and it's great because the arena is part of this larger O2 complex. So there's lots of great bars and restaurants. So people mm. will get themselves well-fed, well-liquored, as you mentioned. <laughs> they will be well and truly up for it. There are few things if anything on this earth that brits like more than a good punch up on a saturday night um it will be loud and it will be lively uh, my guess is and british listeners should feel free to write in and correct me but my guess is that the majority support will be for the gale as i'm not sure eubank has ever been fully embraced uh in the same way that i'm not sure his dad was embraced as much as nigel ben was um fight fans are a forgiving bunch. They will stick with fighters through all kinds of unsavory crimes. But God, if you wear a monocle and act like you're upper class, as his dad did and does, <laughs> that's a step too far. Um, but I think the atmosphere will certainly reflect that there is a, a tremendous amount at stake. So, you know, we've already touched on what kind of purgatory awaits the loser. But what possibilities lay ahead for the winner, do you think? Well, this is a wide open division. Uh, for what it's worth, DeGale and Eubank are, are both in the top 10 of both the Transnational Boxing Rankings Board and of ESPN.com. And the guy who's number one in one of those rankings and number two in the other is Callum Smith, also from mm. England. So that's a fight that just jumps right out of me as, yep. as something that seems to make a lot of sense for the winner. Um, we'll be talking momentarily with Caleb Truax. He has his own challenging fight coming up in April against Peter Quillen. But if he and DeGale both win, you could see a rubber match there. Uh, There are other unbeaten guys at or near the top of the division. Gilberto Zerto Ramirez, Caleb Plant, David Benitez. Some fights are easier to make than others based on promotional politics. But if either DeGale or Eubank comes out looking good in victory, it's Callum Smith that really jumps out and and feels like the the obvious follow-up to me. Yeah, yeah, very much. All right. Tell you what. Let's bring in one of those people you just mentioned, uh, someone who, as a consequence, potentially has a fair bit at stake himself in this matchup. And as we've discussed already, he's pretty well versed in one of the combatants in particular as he split a pair of fights with DeGale in 2017 and 2018. Joining us now in a world boxing podcast first, literally from an ice fishing hole in Minnesota, former 168 pound titleist Caleb Truax. Caleb, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so you went into your first fight with DeGale, you said, with a really specific game plan. Your plan was to go in there, put pressure on him, make him uncomfortable, force him backward. Is that also what Eubank needs to do, do you think? And can he do that? I think he'd be well served to to follow the same game plan that, that I use and, and Badu Jack used uh, the, the, the three fights ago for DeGale, or four fights ago, whatever it was, because... From what I saw, what I what I based my game plan on on that Jack fight, he 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 didn't move very well going backwards. He didn't punch while he was going backwards, and he was he was definitely better going forwards. 
so and and just to follow on what what Kieran asked there is that is that something that you think uh, Eubank can do? Does he does he have the the tools to pull that off? I think so. I mean, he's he's young, he's athletic, he's he's got a great chin. So if he gets caught going forward, uh, I think he can he can still press the action. Um, I'm not too familiar with him. I've I've seen him fight against uh, B.J. Saunders and George Groves and maybe one other fight. And he, he's uh, maybe the the guy from Turkey. I can't pronounce his name. Uh, the guy you knocked out in the Super Series, right. but uh, he's 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 an aggressive fighter. He throws a lot of power punches. I think the problem with him is he just struggles against uh, world class boxers, uh, yeah. as you saw against George Groves, and that's what uh, James Gale is. He's he's a he's a fantastic boxer. He uses angles well. He he's got speed. He's got a little bit of pop. And that's why I wanted to, like, I, I came into that, that first fight, you know, a big underdog. And, and I even said straight up in the interview afterwards, like, I wasn't going to outbox him. I wanted to make it into a dog fight. And I think that's probably the same thing that, that uh, Chris Eubank Jr. should do as well, because I don't think he can outbox, I don't think he can outbox um, uh, DeGale over 12 rounds. Right. So, so what adjustments was DeGale able to make in your rematch? Uh, or, or was it less about his adjustments and more a case of you just not quite being able to do what you had done the first time around? Well, he used his head a lot more, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, you know, I, I, I didn't have my best performance and I, I don't really, uh, I don't really make excuses for anything. That's not the kind of guy I am. But uh, I mean, I don't know. He just, he just, got the job done and, and that's all there is to it. I, I felt, I felt that I should have won. I felt that I did win the fight and did was more busier and pushed him back most of the time. But, you know, I left it up to the judges and, and didn't uh, blow him away like I wanted to. And, and uh, I lost the fight. So Eubank's dad was known for being pretty eccentric and he's viewed as a bit eccentric <laughs> to, to himself. Say the, to say the least. <laughs> to say to the, the least. least. Exactly. <laughs> um, and incredibly, this is apparently the first time that Junior has hired a full-time boxing trainer going into this fight. He's 29 years old. He's had 29 pro bouts. Is it too late for that kind of change? Or do you think a fighter can keep changing up his approach and reinventing himself uh, deep into his career? I think a fighter can always keep changing if he's willing to change. Um, mm. from, from what I've seen from from Eubank, uh, you know, he's, he seems kind of arrogant. He comes across as pretty arrogant. And if you've never thought that you've needed a, a, a trainer for 29 fights prior, you know, what makes, what makes you think that you're going to be receptive to instructions right. that somebody's giving you that you don't agree with for your 30th fight. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if it, we'll see if it, if it benefits him or not. But at this point, you know, who knows, you know, we'll, we'll he'll just have to wait till, till fight time to see. So I'm curious then for for your prediction of sort of how you see this going. Obviously, as you said, you're much more familiar with DeGale than you are Eubank. Uh, the the odds makers have this pretty close to a 50-50 fight. H- how do you picture it unfolding and, and who would you favor to win? I think it goes either one of two ways. I think James DeGale uses his experience, his, his world-class boxing ability and just outpoints Eubank, uh, kind of similar to what Gro- George Groves did. Eubank has struggled with with world class boxers like Groves and, and Saunders, and um, I, DeGale's nothing short of world class. So if if he uh, if he if he sticks to his game plan, uses angles, uses his speed, and uses the experience, I think DeGale gets a, a points win. And on the other hand, if DeGale 
has suffered from the the two tough fights with me and the and the the tough fight with Badu Jack back to back to back. Uh, you know, who knows if he's got a full tank left? And uh, like I said before, Eubank Jr. has a good chin. He's been hit with some good shots and keeps on coming forward. He's got youth on his side. He's he's athletic. Uh, he's in really good shape all the time. So I either see James DeGale outpointing him or. Uh, Christian Eubank Jr. just using his youth and um, getting the job done that way. But if I had to, if I had to make a prediction, I'd say James DeGale by decision. So after you guys, you and DeGale had your rematch, you and he went to the hospital together in the same ambulance. Um, and and it's something we see pretty often, right? Like you guys, you can beat the heck out of each other for 12 rounds. But in the process, you share a bond and a level of respect that, that guys like us, that non-boxers just can't really fully grasp i think is it possible to explain what that kind of like relationship is like and do you actually have former opponents that you would say you're friends with you know uh to answer the the second part of your question i i do in in minnesota it's a pretty small boxing community and and i've fought uh, some local rivals here uh for instance uh cerezo ford i fought him he beat me in the amateurs and i knocked him out uh as a as a professional, it was a pretty big fight here in Minnesota. We had like four or five thousand fans in a, in an arena here, and uh, pretty much sold the place out. Um, and he afterwards, uh, you know, before we were kind of rivals, so we weren't really friendly. But afterwards, uh, you know, we're, we're we're pretty much friends. You know, we spar together afterwards. Uh, we we I support his program. He, he does a lot for kids in St. Paul, and uh, it's just uh, our relationship has changed since since we fought. And uh, who knows if it would have been the same if I if I would have lost to him in the pros. I'm not sure. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it's easier it's easier to be friendly with a guy when you beat him. But uh, um, with uh, uh, with the Gale riding the ambulance, <laughs> it was I, I definitely have respect for the Gale. I, I didn't like some of the stuff he was saying in the build up of the fight. He was pretty dismissive and and kind of dis- disrespectful to me. And it wasn't anything over the top where where I didn't like him or anything like that. I just. Uh, I just uh, didn't uh, appreciate some of the stuff he said, so it was never like any crazy animosity in b- between us. But uh, <laughs> the funny story: the going to the going to the the hospital afterwards, I had to get stitched up. He had to get stitched up, and they kind of just picked me at random. Like James, you're going first. Caleb, you're going second. And we not we're not sure how long you're going to have to wait for the second an- or for the ambulance to come back because we don't have two ambulances. And I said, I just asked him, like, come on, man, just let me ride with. <laughs> I'm not going to start no start no crap with you in the thing. I'm not trying to wait here for another extra half an hour. And like, yeah, I don't care. And I guess <laughs> actually before that, before that uh, fight, b- the fight before mine was um, Julian Williams versus I forgot what the guy's name is. He's a Jamaican kid out of Chicago, and they had a, a little bit of a scuffle after the fight, so they wanted to separate them and. So the lady in the ambulance was kind of nervous, uh, <laughs> letting us ride together. And I'm like, nah, it's cool, man. It's cool. I'm, I'm just trying to go get stitched up and get back to my room and go to sleep. So, uh, it was, it was a, it was an interesting ride for sure. But, uh, um, I figured I'd snap a picture and, and document it and have it for the photo book when I'm done. Right. Very cool. So switching gears a bit to, to your plans, uh, what, what you have coming up uh, on April 13th, you're facing Peter Quillen in a, in a big fight for both of you. Uh, he really struggled after losing to Daniel Jacobs. Uh, he didn't fight at all in 2016 and uh, just once in 2017 and 2018. So are you looking at him as someone who is rusty and vulnerable? And can we expect you to put pressure on him right from the start? You know, he's, he's only had 
two fights, I believe, in the last three years. He, you know, he fought Jacobs in December of 2015, I believe, and then he fought Deshaun Johnson, uh, like almost two uh, almost two years later, and he's, right. he's coming off a, a win over Jaleon Love in August. And in in my opinion, he hasn't looked. I didn't see the Deshaun Johnson fight, but in the Jaleon Love fight, and obviously in the Jacobs fight, he didn't look as good as he has in the past. So I don't know if that's him declining or just being rusty because he's uh, because he's taken three years and only had two fights. Mm. But I'm ready for a Peter Quillen that that won the world title against Hassan Endam. And actually, before that, before that Endam fight where he won the the I think it was the WBO world title, I I was actually in camp with him and, and we sparred uh, three times, like fifteen rounds, five rounds each, uh, for 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 him to get ready to to fight Endam. And ever since we sparred, I wanted that fight. You know, I, I, I came away thinking like, man, I could beat this guy. And mm. I felt it really well against him in sparring. So uh, I'm ready for the best Peter Quillen has to offer. And, and I'm going to do what I always do. Let's go out and, and, and take my time and think and try to pressure him. Because from what I've seen in film, he doesn't actually, from what I've seen in film and what I know, uh, you know, off of firsthand experience, he doesn't deal with pressure well. But if you let him get aggressive and, and start coming forward and throwing power shots. That's when he's at his best. So I'm going to try to back him up and, and uh, just do my thing like I always do. And obviously, you know, that fight is where all your focus is right now. But in an ideal scenario, how do you see the next phase of your career unfolding? And sort of related to that, I'm wondering if you find yourself quietly rooting for DeGale to beat you, Bank, so that maybe you guys could have a rubber match with a chance for you to take that title again. You know, I was just talking to my cousin about that uh, before you guys called here in the fish house. Uh, he was asking if I wanted to be able to win, and I said, I always want the guys who I fought to win because it makes me look better if they, <laughs> if they win. I, I, I hope he goes out and knocks uh, Chris Eubank out in the first round. I don't think it's going to happen, but I hope he does. But, um, no, I, I, uh, I, I'd be more than, more than willing to fight uh, a third match with uh, James DeGale uh, just to settle the score. You know, it's tough for me to... Uh, it's, you know, like they say, tie a tie is like kissing your sister. You know, and I, right. I want to settle the score with that. But like you said as well, I, I I'm totally focused on Peter Quillen. I don't want to make the the same mistake that I think James Agil made against me that first fight around. Is that's looking forward and and counting your uh, counting your chickens before they're hatched. And I just want to focus on April 13th and get the job done. I, I think that's going to be a title eliminator. I'm not sure if it's going to be the IBF or the WBC, but I'm pretty sure they're going to announce that it's going to be a, a title eliminator. So uh, if if that's the case, I'll, I hopefully I'll get a title shot in the near future, if not next. And if not, if James Gale wins this fight and I win mine, then let's do it for a third time. All right. Well, great insights. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Caleb, and, and for taking a break from ice fishing to do so. Uh, first time that's ever ha- happened in the history of our podcast. Um, so yeah. I imagine it'll be the, I imagine it'll be the last two. <laughs> <laughs> Might be. Oh, maybe we'll have you back. So who knows? There you go. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, we wish you good luck uh, both with the fish uh, and against uh, Peter Quillen in, in, in April. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Thanks, Caleb. Okay, we've heard what Caleb has to say and the two possible ways he sees the fight unfolding. It's prediction time for us. Uh, The score 
for those keeping track. Uh, it's currently 19 to 17 in my favor, counting the showbox results from Friday night that we'll be talking about in a bit. Uh, Kieran, it's your turn to go first with your pick. Who you got in DeGale versus Eubank? So part of me is really rolling over quite a bit in my head, that discussion that, that we had earlier, specifically about DeGale possibly being, if not near the end, then at least on the downslope mm-hmm. of his career. And and that other thing about Eubank actually doing things like having a trainer. Um, and, and part of me feels that that might all come together for a Eubank victory, uh, based primarily on DeGale not being what he was. Uh, but then I think about that and you look at, okay, we talked about DeGale maybe not being what he was, but let's look at this recent sequence of fights. He was pushed hard, got a draw against Abadu Jack, who certainly at that time was very much at world level and who darn nearly then beat Adonis Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Um, and he split a couple of very close fights with a good fighter in Caleb Truax. And I think at the time he faced those guys, you would make both of those guys fairly clear favorites over Eubank, I think. Um, and while Eubank can certainly improve his technical ability with proper training, I'm not sure that he can make a massive leap in it overnight so all of which is a classically long-winded way of getting to my point which is <laughs> while it's possible that we find that Eubank is just too athletic and fresh for the older guy and kind of runs over him a little bit um, and DeGale just never gets off to the races I'm gonna say that I still think that the quality of the opposition he's faced has perhaps exaggerating the decline in James DeGale. And then I think he just has too much natural talent and technical ability. I think he will have some tough moments. It'll probably be closer than it would have been like a couple years ago, but I'm going to go slightly out on the limb here and say that he gets a majority decision win, James DeGale. Okay. Well, this, this is a really tough one for me. Uh, the odds makers aren't committing too hard to either side. And in terms of method of victory, at one of the legal U.S. sports books, I looked it up. DeGale on points is plus 190. Eubank by KO is plus 200. And Eubank wow. on points is plus 240. So they're all right in the same range. The only outcome that they've listed as a real long shot is DeGale by KO at plus 900. Um, but, you know, they, those other three are all considered fairly equal. I find it interesting that Eubank is insisting he's not a super middleweight, that he's really a 160-pounder. His last five fights have all been at 168, so I'm not buying that. I don't think size should be a factor here. The key factor to me is youth. Uh, Eubank is in his prime. DeGale, I know you just said a a lot of it has to do with the quality of the opposition, and I'm sure some of it does, but it looks to me like the tough fights are catching up Mm. with him. Um, He can certainly box and hustle and win some rounds, but can he hold Eubank off and win enough rounds? I'm going to say no. Uh, We're we're doing a good job so far here at uh, disagreeing more than we used to, uh, creating creating a little swing in the the points competition. I think DeGale is... Uh, tough as hell and and crafty enough to weather some storms. So I'm not predicting the knockout uh, victory for Eubank. I'm going to predict this goes the distance with Chris Eubank Jr. scoring what should probably be considered a career best win by competitive unanimous decision. All right. How about that? Look at us. <laughs> yeah, look at us. <laughs> All right. Uh, and as Kieran noted at the top of the podcast, this is a doubleheader. Uh, the opening bout sees heavyweight action as 7-0 and Joe Joyce from England takes on former titleist Bermain Stiverne. Uh, Kieran, Joe Joyce is probably the less familiar name to most of our audience. What can you tell us about him? 
So there's a lot of interest in Joyce over there, and I guess to some extent over here. Uh, he trains with our friend Abel Sanchez. Uh, this is their fourth fight together, I think. Uh, so you know he's getting some great tutelage and possibly some excellent advice from the likes of Golovkin and Gassi about there in Big Bear. Um, he's also gained experience from sparring with Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. Uh, like a lot of the recent wave of good Brits, he's an Olympian. He won silver in Rio, and a fair few folks think he deserved the gold. Um uh, he fought six times last year and turned pro with a 10-rounder. Um, he's being moved fast. And actually yeah. being moved fast with good reason. He's actually 33 years old, even though he's fought a grand total of 19 rounds in his pro career. Um, he didn't take up boxing until the age of 22, uh, after a track career was slightly derailed by injuries. Uh, supposedly, a fortune teller told his mom that he would be a successful boxer, even though at the time he was a triple jumper. So make of that what you will. Um, <laughs> He's a big lad. Uh, the lowest he's, uh, the lightest he's weighed as a pro is 251, and the heaviest is 263. Uh, all seven wins have come by way of KO. Um, alas, the clairvoyant apparently, not that I'm aware of, did not tell us how he would do against Deverne, uh, who certainly has far <laughs> more experience, um, and was the first person to take Deontay Wilder the distance. But then, as we all know, Deverne faced Wilder a second time and looked awful. As Wilder blew him out inside around Eric, what do you think we can realistically expect to see from the veteran? That's a great question, and unless you were inside Stavern's training camp for this mm. fight, you, you can't know. He's 40 years old, he hasn't fought in 15 months, and he's only fought one round in the last three years. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, can he be... He barely fought that. Right, <laughs> exactly. He received punches for one round in the last three years, would be another way to say it. So, yeah, I, I'm asking myself, you know, can he still be the guy who beat Chris Ariola twice and, and who went the distance with Deontay Wilder in 2015? I don't know. Uh, he looked like a punching bag in that Wilder rematch, yeah. for sure. Um, you know, he was dropped three times in two minutes and 59 seconds. Stavern insists that wasn't him. He said he sent an imposter to, into the ring and, quote, my mind was not attached to my body. Uh, also, you know, put the excuses aside. It was Deontay Wilder. You know, for all his flaws, Deontay Wilder is a ridiculous puncher. And if he catches you early, you're in big trouble. Here's something to look for. What weight will Stavern come in at? His best results were when he weighed around 240. You know, high 230s, low 240s. For the Wilder rematch, he was 254 and three quarters, and that didn't work out so well. Uh, so watch the way in here. If Stavern is around 240, at least we know he's serious and giving himself his best chance to win. If he's over 250, that suggests he might just be picking up a paycheck. So notwithstanding the fact that we're recording this before we have that information, right? Um, <laughs> what's your prediction? Uh so we've said that Joe Joyce doesn't waste time, uh, whether in his career overall with how fast he's moving or in an individual fight. Uh, he's aggressive. He's big and strong and can punch. He also isn't hard to find. So Stavern catching him and scoring the upset isn't impossible. But if they ran this fight 100 times, I'd say 98 of them are ending with Joyce scoring the knockout. Mm. I don't think Stavern at age 40 is the veteran opponent who's going to reveal Joyce's shortcomings. This is a step up for Joyce, but I expect him to pass the test and look good doing so. Joyce is coming off a first-round knockout win. Stavern is coming off a first-round knockout loss. One plus one equals two. I'm going with Joyce KO2. Very scientific. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. People think we just throw this stuff together. No. Um so uh, part of me, you know, I was starting to think, well, Stavron can't 
isn't as bad as he appeared last time out, but I don't know, maybe he is now. Right. Um, he's certainly, I think, not as good as he looked against Chris Ariola. Um, and just to even add to that whole inactivity thing, this will be just his third fight in four years, including the one-round blowout where he you know, was the punching bag. Right. Before that, he fought just once in 2014, once in 2013, once in 2012. I mean, my goodness me. So, I mean, he's been getting old while just sitting on the shelf most of the time. It's so hard to know what we'll have from him and whether, in fact, what we saw from him last time out is what he is now. He clearly something was going on. You could tell by the way he was walking to the ring against Wilder that it was going, it was all going to be work out quite poorly for him. I'm just going to go ahead and assume that he's not that bad, um, but that it is a signal that you know things are getting very close to the end for him and i think that joyce's athleticism and strength um and aggression will be too much for him i'm picking around out of the hat here unlike your scientific <laughs> yeah methods. seriously i used um, i used so much science and you're just pulling around out of a hat so you know what i'll tell you what one plus one is two. One plus one plus two is four. Joyce wins in the fourth. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for embracing the science. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, not a lot of other major boxing action this weekend, but there are a few bouts worth noting. Uh, the O2 card isn't the only card in the UK on Saturday. In Leicester, Anthony Yardy is taking on Travis Reeves in light heavyweight action atop a card that will be streaming in the US on ESPN+. That same night on Fox Sports 1, Anthony Durrell, who has a first-round knockout win over our guest Caleb Truax. Uh, if you're still listening, Caleb, sorry for reminding you of that. Uh, but Durrell meets Avni Yildirim, whose only loss is to Chris Eubank Jr. Uh, they meet for a vacant super middleweight strap, and the winner there is certainly in the mix as a potential opponent for Truax or Peter Quillen, or indeed for Eubank or DeGale. And lastly, in Tijuana, in a fight that is streaming on DAZN, Brandon Rios takes on Humberto Soto at, remarkably, 154 pounds in a fight that I would have been pretty pumped for, oh, five years ago. Uh, exactly. The O2 card is clearly the biggest one of the weekend, and I'm not just saying that because it's on Showtime. I'm saying it because it's clearly the biggest card of the weekend. But, Kieran, anything leap out at you from that assortment of other fights? Uh, well, Rios Soto gives me a touch of the sads. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, like you said, it would have been fine five years and about 14 pounds yeah. ago. Um, you know, two guys who could probably stand to hang him up. And of course, in Rios's case did for a while, but they've won a couple lately. They're keeping that flame alive. Um, I am certainly interested in Darrell Yildirim. Uh, as you mentioned, Yildirim was beaten by Eubank Jr. And Darrell does have that win over Truax as well as a close loss to Badu Jack. So, we already know a fair bit about both those guys, and we'll know a lot more about them and about how and where they stack up in the division after this. So um, I think as part of you know what you talked about earlier, that whole way things are sort of taking shape there at around 168, I think that'll be that's certainly a very interesting one. But I'm also very interested in Yardi. Uh, he's 17 and 0 with 16 KOs. His only distance fight was over four rounds in his second contest. Uh, he hasn't really faced anyone of consequence yet, and as far as I'm aware that won't necessarily change a very great deal on Saturday, but uh, he's certainly one to watch, so I'm going to look out for him. Okay. All right, well, that's enough looking ahead for the moment. Let's look back at this past Friday night showbox card. We saw two 10-round fights go the distance, 
One gave us a beautiful boxing performance, the other an unappetizing clash of styles. We'll save the best for last and start with the one that was, quite frankly, an ugly fight. Shojahon Ergashev won a decision over Michael Fox in an overweight junior welterweight bout by scores of 96-94 and 98-92 twice. And I personally thought those 98-92 scores were a bit too wide. Ergashev looked like a beast in the first round. But then he slowed down and was neutralized somewhat by the length and awkwardness of Fox. And Ergashev looked for much of the fight like the one-handed fighter I'd seen in previous bouts. I thought it was a close fight, and I came away not terribly sold on Ergashev as an elite prospect. Kieran, did you feel the same way? And how much of Ergashev's struggles do you just chalk up to Fox being impossible to look good against? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't pretty, was it? Um, And I do think you have to acknowledge that. It's entirely possible, as you, as you said, that nobody's ever going to look good against Fox because just for all the obvious reasons. Um, and it is, you know, Ergashev can, you know, it is still early in the guy's career. But I was hoping for a lot more from Ergashev. Uh, he was, as you mentioned, so wild and left hand happy. Um, it was like a poor man's 2002 Manny Pacquiao, <laughs> just yep. flinging left hands, um, not really helping himself at all. Um and it was weird. He was he he came flying out of the blocks, just overly full of energy, and 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 just flinging these wild left hands. And then when he settled down a bit and stopped being quite so crazy, he, then Fox had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to get into the fight and use his movement and his reach, you know, reasonably effectively. I mean, I guess. Look, if I'm Ergashev's team, I I guess I mark this down as one of the nights where you just go away with the win. And try to put it behind you and never mention the name Armin Tanzarian again. <laughs> um, I, I suspect most boxers' careers have at least one night like that, even the successful ones. Uh, certainly not right, wanting to write the guy off, um, but I, I just wasn't terribly impressed either. And, and I'll watch again if he's back on Showbox, as I sus- I'm sure he will be. Um, but when I do, I'll dial the excitement down a little bit beforehand um, compared to how I was feeling going into this one. Yeah, I have a fun random observation about the CompuBox numbers for the fight. Since <laughs> we've established, I'm very into numbers and math. We've, we've made that clear. Uh, there's there's no real rule about how many jabs equal a power punch. That's the sort of thing that it's in the eye of the beholder when scoring a fight. But I've heard it suggested that you know two jabs for every one power punch is a good guideline. Not saying I subscribe to that, but for the sake of the stats I'm about to cite, let's assume it has some merit <laughs> because I found this interesting. In jabs... Fox outlanded Ergashev by 50 of them, uh, 52 to just two for Ergashev. So he had an edge of 50 jabs. In power punches, Ergashev outlanded Fox by 25, 66 to 41. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so if we're giving one point for every jab and two for every power punch, the final result is dead even. Now, that's not how you score fights at all, of course. But uh, since it supports my opinion that this fight was close... I'm using it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I am. <laughs> uh, I, I, I prefer to be uh, defined as a geek, not a nerd. Very well. Uh, so, yeah. uh, but however you scored this fight, uh, Ergashev didn't get the big KO win he was hoping for. Philosophical question for you here, Kieran. Was it bad matchmaking for Ergashev to fight Fox because of the style matchup? Or was it worth it for the learning experience of going 10 rounds with a 6-foot-4-inch southpaw? So as is my one... I will avoid making a decision between those two options. <laughs> I don't and even argue... know why I ask you questions anymore. <laughs> I know. I guess, and I'm going to argue that it's possible for both things to be true. Okay. Um, 
So it was, in hindsight, a risky endeavor uh, that almost didn't come off, that certainly won't elevate his Q rating and won't have fans demanding to see him again. But conversely, hopefully, his team will sit down with him, go through the tape with him, point to the errors that he made, all the things he could have done better, how he could have boxed better early, try to cut off the ring more, and just vary his punch output more. There was a point, near, I think it's quite near the end of the fight, was it in the last round, or I'm not quite sure when it was, where he did, after throwing yet another looping-ish left hand, follow with a short right that briefly rolled Fox's eyes into the back of his head. And mm. a bit more of that, just more imagination and purpose, would not have gone amiss. Um, and I, I think he's maybe gotten a bit KO happy, what with blasting guys out in his last couple of fights. And right. um, it sort of felt as if he psychologically expected to do the same and then couldn't quite adapt uh, when he couldn't. Um, I also wonder if he was knocked on his heels a little bit by the severity very early on with which Bill Clancy was admonishing him. Um, right, that's a good point. He was uh, def- definitely throwing him out of his rhythm, not letting yeah. him do the things that he was comfortable doing in, in certain yeah, spots. Yeah, because he went, he went straight to 11, really, with his warnings, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, it was risky matchmaking. It was ultimately ugly matchmaking. And with a guy whose style didn't mesh well with his, uh, hopefully it will be a learning process. Not in terms of how to be a six foot four opponent, because... <laughs> right. Probably he won't have to worry about that again, but but certainly in terms of what he can do differently himself whenever he's faced with a very difficult opponent. Right. Okay. In much more aesthetically pleasing action, uh, not to mention uh, pleasing to my online wagering bankroll. And yes, I'm going to brag every time I make a winning bet because I need to counterbalance my admission that I bet against Caleb Plan. Anyway, uh, at junior featherweight, Thomas Patrick Ward dominated Jesse Angel Hernandez over 10 rounds in his U.S. debut. He scored a big knockdown at the end of round four with a left hook, and he prevailed by scores of 100 to 89, 99 to 90, and 98 to 90. Hernandez is no pushover, but Ward was just too slick and sharp for him. I was dazzled and can't wait to see him again. Did you feel the same way or am I going overboard? I was super impressed. Um, The the scouting reports told us he was a mover, um, but he displayed an entirely different kind of movement than I'd anticipated based on that KO percentage of his. Um, He just never stopped working. And, And what a nightmare he must be to face because he starts off at a furious pace and he doesn't let up, at least, you know, based on what we saw. Um, he landed 52% of his power punches, 46% of his total punches. Uh, he had Hernandez in a shell, really, after that knockdown. Um, he was so effective, not only because he clearly has fast hands, but he was controlling that distance perfectly. His feet were placed perfectly when he threw. So his punches got there rapidly, not just because of his hand speed, but because they just didn't have very far to travel. Um, I thought it was a terrific performance. Uh, I am with you on that 100%, which is only a slightly higher percentage than his punch connects. (laughs) Right, pretty close. Um, Yeah, uh, my bet specifically was for him to win a decision. Uh, That was was the bet that I focused on uh, because of that KO percentage and and assuming he couldn't punch. And he made me pretty nervous uh, that I was going to lose my bet uh, when he scored that knockdown in the fourth round. It was a serious shot. Hernandez was legit hurt. And if not for the round ending before Ward could follow up, we might have seen a knockout. Do you suspect Ward is, is not quite as feather fisted as his 15 percent knockout rate suggests? Well, he made uh, Raul Marquez look uh, really prescient, didn't he? Because in those couple of rounds before that knockdown, Raul was talking about how Ward's team had said he's sitting down on his punches more and maybe, you know, developing that 
man strength that we hear so often about in young boxes. Um, and like you said, it was such a good shot that had it been a minute or so earlier in the round, his KO percentage would, and just to show that I can do the math too, <laughs> would have left all the way up to 19%. Wow, all right. See? Huh? Yeah. Um, and as it was, you know, Clancy was, was uh, uh, clearly thinking about stopping the contest a couple of times. Um, it was such a good shot because it was so fast. And because he doesn't telegraph his punches, eh? He's, his punches aren't predictable. The sequence isn't predictable. And they leave and they land and they're back again in, in the blink of an eye. So that all of that uh, suggests that, you know, he could well be one of those guys who hits much harder than maybe his KO percentage suggests there was uh, not that I'm at all like equating him to Bernard Hopkins, but Bernard late career, Bernard was a lot like that in that he didn't right. get a lot of stoppages, but he made guys go into their shell early yeah, because he hit hard enough and unconventionally enough that they just didn't know what to do with him. And I think he might be a bit like that, but we might also, if he does keep sitting down on those punches like that, increase that KO, right? That was a cracking punch. I mean, it looked like, uh, Hernandez was was out before he hit the canvas and then sort of came back to and, and, and wasn't wasn't that together again. Look, I really want to see Thomas Patrick Ward again. Let's, let's just put it like that. That's for sure. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I'll just to play devil's advocate, maybe a little bit on that punch, you could say, I mean, it was a perfect connection. The way that that punch landed was perfect. So the fact that it didn't end the fight maybe <laughs> does support the notion that Ward isn't uh, such a heavy-handed natural puncher. But we'll see. I think both of us feel like his knockout percentage, if anything, is probably going to tick up a bit as he moves along from here. Yeah. All right. There were a couple of other fights to note from this past weekend. Hey, we talked to one Minnesota boxer earlier. And on Friday on ESPN, another one, Rob Brandt, followed up his shock win over Rio de Murata, which I surely didn't see coming, uh, with a late stoppage win over Kassan Baisangrov to retain a middleweight belt in his home state. Um, on Saturday on Fox, uh, veteran Leo uh, Santa Cruz pretty much shut out Rafael Rivera. I think mm-hmm. won 11 of 12 rounds on every scorecard to retain a featherweight title. And in welterweight action on that same card, Omar Figueroa scored... A slightly controversial win over John Molina Jr. over 10 rounds. Uh, what you got to say about all that, Ben, Eric? <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you a general comment uh, that, that sort of applies to all of it. A, a word to the wise for boxing fans. Always set those DVRs to run late. Uh, ESPN yeah. shows tend to start late, uh, and, and there's just no regard for the scheduled end time on any of these networks, it seems. So these cards uh, served as a reminder. Always pad it by at least an hour. Uh, so there's that. Um, Leo Santa Cruz, certainly the best fighter in action this weekend, and he did Leo Santa Cruz things. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't believe he's 30 years old. Uh, seems Wow, yeah, it's uh, amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, and as good as his career has been, I wish he'd been in a couple more real fights against name opponents by now. Hopefully such a fight is coming next. Um, I thought Joshua Greer kind of stole the show from Rob Brandt on that ESPN card. Greer is a really fun fighter. Uh, shout out also to Rafe Bartholomew's favorite six foot seven junior middleweight, Sebastian Fundora, who scored a TKO win on the Fox undercard. Uh, my son was watching with me and found Fundora's skinniness tremendously entertaining. Uh, and you know what? Fundora can fight too. Um, He's much more fun to watch than the similarly built uh, Michael Fox. Uh, But last thing, probably the most discussion-worthy point from these fights, judges just love Omar Figueroa. Uh, Mm. Solid fight against Molina, not the knockdown drag out we were hoping for, but a good scrap. I actually did think Figueroa won. I had it 96-94, 
pretty much the entire internet thought it was close yeah. one way or the other. And yeah. on the judges' cards, Molina needed a knockout to win by about the seventh or eighth round. I don't get it. Figueroa is one of these guys who remains this undefeated prospect after 29 fights, but he could and probably should have a loss or two on his record. He shows up with a soft body and, and fighting above the weight he should be at. To me, he's sort of this undefeated prospect and this exposed 29-year-old former prospect at the same time, if that makes sense. Right, right. Soft body and above the weight he should be at. He's a man after my own heart. <laughs> my figure <laughs> Um, uh, a couple of upcoming fights, uh, also to, to note on April 13th in Atlantic city, Teresa Shields will meet Christina Hammer on Showtime in a matchup that's been much talked about, including by Teresa on our podcast, uh, during Pacquiao Bruno fight week for some time. Um, obviously we'll talk about it in more depth when the time comes and Clarissa was already doing a pretty good job of talking about it with Steve Arhood during Friday night's broadcast. But, uh, what are your initial thoughts about this? Yeah. Well, Steve, when interviewing Clarissa throughout the idea that this might be the biggest fight in women's boxing history, and that that'll be an interesting discussion point leading up to the fight. Women's boxing is still looking for its Ronda Rousey, someone to really yeah. cross over and take the sport mainstream. You know, Christy Martin did that to an extent, she took women's undercard bouts mainstream. It's not the same thing, uh, but she she moved it in the right direction. And then you had Layla Ali, who became a household name, but her fights never became a crossover attraction. Clarissa Shields is one of the women in contention to maybe do that. She has the story and the background. She's obviously a good professional fighter. The Christina Hammer fight is a test case in more ways than one to tell us how far she can go and, and whether women's boxing can ever be as popular as Ronda Rousey made women's MMA for a little while there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's good. She talks a good game as well as fights a good game, Teresa. So we yep. shall see. Um, one person who had been scheduled to fight in a couple of weeks was Polish light heavyweight Andrzej Fonfara. Um, but he not only withdrew from his scheduled March 9th encounter with Edwin Rodriguez, he uh, withdrew from boxing, <laughs> um, announcing his retirement at the age of 31. Uh, Eric, give us uh, the quick recap on Fonfara's career. Uh, so uh, I was ringside for one Fonfara fight, and it was a disaster for him. It was the first round knockout loss to Joe Smith in Chicago in mm -hmm. probably the 2016 upset of the year. That was the beginning of the end. He, he got demolished inside two rounds by Adonis Stevenson two years later, uh, fought once more, now says he's retired. If he is, as we said with George Gross, good for him. He's getting out at the right time. And he would be remembered as a solid light heavyweight contender, fought every top guy he could, very popular with the Polish fans. And he'll be best remembered for a gutsy loss to Stevenson in their first fight, where he battled back from early trouble and rallied to nearly win the lineal title. And then two fights later, he beat the crap out of Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. for a <laughs> yeah. career best win. Uh, he also beat Nathan Cleverly, Gabriel Campillo, Glenn Johnson. He had a good run, um, but he got rocked and knocked out by Joe Smith in the first round. And that proved to be the end of him as a top level fighter. We close with a couple more items from the light heavyweight division. Uh, top rank announced that lineal champ Alexander Vojtic's first title defense will be against Dudu Ngumbu, who ha happens to be among the career victims of Andre Fonfara. Um, everything's just perfectly connected here. It uh, really is. So that fight will be in Philadelphia on March 30th. If you go along and watch. If you yeah, it's, it's, it's a good test of my laziness in, in terms of attending <laughs> fights I'm not actually covering for anyone. That's right in Philly. We'll, we'll, we'll see how lazy I am. And in case anybody's looking for anything else to do, March 30th is my birthday. Oh, 
There you go. Yeah. Meet me in Philly at the fights. There you go. All right. Um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you think you're lazy. Good Lord. <laughs> um, uh, also, in the light heavyweight division, there's been uh, some hopeful news lately mm-hmm. about the health of the man from whom Vojtek took that lineal title, Adonis Stevenson, who, of course, suffered severe injuries in that fight and has been hospitalized since. Uh, in the last few weeks, he has reportedly begun to walk and talk some, and he was recently moved from the hospital in Quebec City, where he had been since the fight, to one in his native Montreal. So we hope that those are good signs, and that Adonis Stevenson is on the road to at least some kind of recovery there. Indeed. So it's nice to be able to finish on a somewhat positive note, and that is where we will leave it. Uh, you will be hearing from us again quite soon, he says, foreshadowing. And of course... We will be back in a week to review DeGale Eubank. Don't forget that is at 3.45 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. Um, And we will also look ahead to the March 2nd Showtime Championship boxing card from Brooklyn featuring Eris Landy Lara against Brian Castaño. Until then, as always, thank you for listening.